Well, a week ago, I wasn't here. I was in my hometown, and I rode around and reminisced uh, the old places, as they say, the old stomping grounds. I went to old places, and, and just uh, I played, when you get my age, if you play music from the 70s and 80s and ride around in your hometown, all kind of memories come back, very vivid memories just paraded. I went to the house where I grew up. And the family came out. I don't know them. They didn't know me. They came out and wondered why I was walking around their house taking pictures. Um, I went to another house that we were lived for a couple of years. And I went to the spot where I had this really bad bike wreck. I was going down Maple Drive and I was trying to get to Persimmon. I should have turned on Ponderosa. I turned on Sassafras. And it was a big hill. And I hit a pothole with my friends Mike and Tony. And I had a big wreck. And my mom thought I was actually going to die. She took me to the hospital with covered in blood. And I, I made it out alive, obviously. And I hope some of you at least are grateful for that today. But it's just a good time reminiscing of the, the old stomping grounds. And one of the places, I, I remember there was one house and I remember a coach that lived there, a young aspiring coach. And I bought a set of golf clubs from this coach. Uh, his name was Bruce Arians. Anybody recognize uh, that name? Bruce Arians has uh, gone on to be the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And with Tom Brady, won a Super Bowl this year. And I went on to become a super bad golfer. The highlight of uh, my trip to my hometown was my son graduating from college, and the second highlight of my trip to my hometown was time with my mama, just enjoying her, and she cooked dinner for us on Saturday night. She told me, Robert, I'm going to make a steak for us, and I knew when she was going to make a steak, she was going to throw in a baked potato and a salad. It would taste just like all those steaks and baked potatoes and salads that, that I had when I was growing up, and, and it occurred to me, I said, Mom, you know, a, a week from tomorrow is Mother's Day. And I just, I don't know why, I just came out. I just said, and this is your gift right here. And she's just really looked disappointed in me. Uh, it was the look I've seen probably a million times. And uh, she said, what, what's the gift? I said, my presence is your present. And she said, God help you. God, I raised you the, the wrong way. Look, Mother's Day, look, Hallmark, Walgreens, Target, you name it. It's, it reminds us, no way they're going to let us forget that it's Mother's Day. And for some of us this morning, it's just simple, unfettered joy and gratitude, right? But for many of us, it's complicated. And it's days like today that I'm reminded that Jesus came. When he came, he came to start a new family, a whole new kind of family. And there are no second-class citizens. There's nobody that's left out. Uh, all are welcome in. And uh, it's easy to think for parents in the room to have the notion that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a parent, I'm becoming a parent, I am a parent, and so I'm going to be happier. Anybody ever thought that way? I'm going to be a parent, so I'm going to be happy now. And there's a lot of research behind this if you want to come at me later. But uh, look, a lot of research uh, that uh, it doesn't guarantee happiness. In fact, uh, I think what, the, what it teaches, what, what we can learn is that it brings meaning, maybe added contours and dimensions into your life, but it doesn't necessarily bring added happiness. It certainly brings added complication and added difficulty and added pain with the multiplied responsibilities and what, you, what happens in your heart when you bring someone in to this world. Uh, but it, you know, we, it's just easy for us to think, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm a parent now, I'm a mom, and I'm going to be serenely happy. And I remember early on when Susan was just exhausted and she just didn't seem serenely happy. And I said to her, I said, Susan, you don't seem serenely happy. Why not? And she wasn't even happy with a question. Guys, uh, learn from me if you will. 
And she said, think about it. You know, what I'm experiencing, you'll never understand. To have somebody you always have to feed, constantly pick up after, to be at their beck and call. And in addition to you, I've got this new life that just exhausts me, just wears me out. Uh, Parenthood, it is a joy and it's a challenge. And the thing about being a parent, uh, we're well into this uh, process, as a few of you are, just well into it. And you never not be a parent. You'll never not have your heart opened up. You'll never not uh, stop carrying uh, a burden for them and caring uh, for them. Today, we're going to be in an interesting passage, uh, somewhat obscure. When I look at your face, when I tell you to turn there, I'm going to see it. But turn to Hosea today. Uh, if, you're, if you're intimidated, you don't want to embarrass yourself, it'll be on the screen, okay? Just be like, hey, I'm good, I'm good. I know how to turn there, but I'm just going to look at it on the screen. Act like it's your personal preference. Uh, but we'll, we'll look there uh, in just a minute. But a good passage today that we're going to look at, but it's really just God's heart. We're going to see God... Uh, as a parent we're going to see God as he uh, has a heart that's broken and that's a part of being a parent isn't it a a heart that's broken where you just again you can't always script it out Uh, I googled this week uh, the most disappointed parent ever and it uh, it took me here you you can do this later Uh, it was it's a guy named Nick Cruz and he's become kind of a, a folk legend in the United Kingdom because of this. And here's a letter that he wrote to his children. Notice how he clumps them in. Now, your, your bad, your worst parenting moments are when you clump them all in together. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's not calling one by the other person's name. It's just when you clump them all in together. And this is how Nick Cruz starts his letter that's become, it's gone viral, become famous. Dear all three, it's obvious that none of you has the faintest notion of the bitter disappointment each of you has in your own way dished out to us. We are constantly regaled with chapter and verse of the happy, successful lives of the families of our friends and relatives and being asked of the news of our own children and grandchildren. I wonder if you realize how we feel. I cannot tell you that I, for one, and I sense mom feels the same, have had enough of being forced to live through the never-ending bad dream of our children's underachievement. I want to hear no more from any of you until, if you feel inclined, you have a success of an achievement or a realistic plan. I am bitterly, bitterly disappointed, Dad. Now, some of you are feeling better about your own family life now, aren't you? A little bit better about where you are. Uh, David Brooks, a famous writer of New York Times. I'm looking at somebody that's read The Road to Character with me about the same time. David Brooks, New York Times, uh, called this man, Nick Cruz, a folk hero. And he said, uh, perhaps the reason it's gone viral, so many parents are disappointed in their kids. And this guy apparently had the gumption to put some of it down. And he he said that in Britain, there's a lot of disgust that parents have, that they've given their uh, children, privileged, entitled children, a first-class education. And they frittered it away with ceaseless complaints about their privileged existence and so a disappointed dad but think for a moment maybe a little differently than some of you and hear me out to the end but think of God as a parent and think of the story of the Bible as a parent that had all kind of reason to be disappointed you know when you first become a parent you think if you just fill them if you fill their tank and you fill that tank with words of affirmation and a whole lot of love, an occasional ounce of uh, discipline and such, and you mix all that in, that grace and truth that John chapter 1 talks about, and you just fill their tank, and then you're gonna, they're going to turn out well. And they're going to be, largely, they're going to be successful 
and you know, put together people and they're gonna live good lives and they're not gonna be riddled with a fear and anxiety. And it's just not true. It's not altogether true. And you're gonna be disappointed if you're gonna be a parent. Any mom's disappointed today. And God gives us a letter, thankfully. It's not a letter like the one we just read. But I hope today that it will, in essence, go viral and it'll get in us today to consider a parent who had every reason in the world to be disappointed. Every reason. The, his children had disobeyed him at every turn. They had gone after false gods. They had chased idols. Uh, John Calvin calls the human heart uh, an idol factory. We produce idols within us, and we see that in the children of Israel, and we see it in us today, just different idols that we chase after. They had followed foreign gods, and they had oppressed other people that were weak and vulnerable, and we see a God who could be so disappointed. But we see something different than we see in this letter from the most disappointed parent in the world. So let's look at it. Hosea, we'll read chapter 11, uh, verse 1 through 7 first. Take a pause and read a few more verses. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. A people group there, you'll remember, that were in slavery. And so we see a tender heart, a tender picture of who God is now. The more they were called, the more they went away. You can see disappointing. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burnt offerings to idols. Yet I, it was I who taught uh, Ephraim. That's a nickname. Parents have nicknames. You guys have nicknames for your kids. This is a nickname that God had given Israel. Ephraim to walk. I taught them. I took them up by their arms. See, see, see what's parental? How many of you, uh, you look back with tenderness there? I taught you how to walk. I picked you up and I held you. You see that tenderness in God. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. They didn't know. They didn't know. Does that child that you're raising moms, does that child know and appreciate all that you're doing for them now? I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them, moving from the family to the farm real quick. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. In other words, this is their language. We don't get it today, but they, they'll have an oppressor. They could be given over to judgment, God is saying, because they've refused to return to me, giving you ample opportunity to come home. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates. That was their only line of defense and devour them because of their own my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. The tender heart of God who loves his children. I'm so grateful that our God, look, let me point to his character. Our God doesn't say to you, if, if this is your view of God, it's askew. If this is what you believe about, about him, you've, you've been taught the wrong way. But God doesn't say, I don't want to hear from you until success or achievement, or some realistic plan. It's in fact, he says, come to me now. Come to me, all of you. In fact, when you come to me and you know that you need me and you're brokenhearted, that's the prayer that I really hear. That's when I can be most near to you is when you know that you need me and you return and you call out. And here we see the patience of God, a nickname pointing to the tenderness of their beginnings, 
but, not, but acknowledging their waywardness, the, the prodigal nature that's in all of us. All we like sheep, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. One more time, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Is there anybody in the house exempt from that today? All of us. What, what way are you turned this morning? Where is your heart? Is it toward, toward God as a loving father and as a parent? Or is it turning away from him? Where are you on the journey? Are you in the, in the prodigal way apart from him and you feel that distance? And we see God's love here. He's not saying, I'm turning away from you until success, achievement, or realistic plan. He's saying, return back to me. My heart is for you. Verses 8 through 11 of the same chapter. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Abdam? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? And my heart recoils within me. One passage, one English translation says that it, it just stirs within me, that it rages within me. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. And they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. A little bit of revelation in this. Y'all feel like that? Remember the first in January, we were going through revelation a little bit, like a lot of geography and metaphor and all this and stuff that uh, I'd encourage you to uh, dig deeper, study on your own. But just this, know this, that God is saying... There's, he's not, there's an inner battle here. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's not, a, it's not God versus an outside force. It's not even God versus his children. We see Hosea, the prophet, give us a, a picture of God. It's God inside. It's God within. It's God, uh, in essence, doing battle with himself of that just recoiling. But he says his love, his character, he points to his holiness. Now, it's interesting, holiness is a word that gets lost in our day. When you think of holy, you think of weird and churchy, am I right? A so-and-so is holy, especially if they're a holy roller. But even the word itself, holy, it's like weird and churchy. And we, when we put it to God, we think it's the part of God who is uh, remote and strict and severe. But it's interesting in this passage, anybody notice it on the first reading? It's interesting here that according to the prophet, it's the holiness of God that points to his love. The holiness of God is not an obstacle to his love. It's the foundation of his love. It's like he's saying, um, I, I keep my promises. Anybody in love, anybody in new love this morning? Uh, this could be an awkward moment if you're sitting next to them, but anybody feel love and loved? Anybody feel like loving the person next to you even more and being sweeter to them? Like love is a good thing. Love is, love is a great feeling. I, I preached this before, borrowing from a writer I admire. There's a spark love. And that's where, you know, when you first met and the, there's endorphins and dopamine and things fly. And it's like, hey, hey, sparky, sparky. I like you. You like me. Are you interested? Let me get your digits. And then something deeper than spark love is significant love. That's when you realize, hey, this person that I find attractive, that, I, that I'm drawn toward, they're kind of liking me, but that we, we see the world similarly. There's something good here and that's good don't go forward with somebody if there's if you don't share significant love but there's something even deeper than that and so few of us know and it's sacrificial love anybody knows how those three words mirror the greek of the greek words for love and sacrificial love we would say is that agape love it's when i intend your good to be even greater than my own and very few people understand 
what sacrificial love is. And God is saying, my holiness, and one more time, is not an obstacle to my love. It's the foundation of my love. In other words, could you imagine loving someone, looking, no doubt, somebody hearing this right now or later, this is where some people are going to be. But you're in love with somebody, but they're, they don't have good character. They don't have the character maybe that's needed for the long haul. And, it, it, you know, if you feel a spark with someone now, but they can't keep their promise, how far do you want that to go? How much, how far do you want to go with that? And God is saying, I'm holy and I keep my promise and I will always love my children. And that's reflected here in the heart of God. A book was written um, years ago by a Canadian and there's a story behind the story and at, at a little bit of risk here, I'm going to read this to you this morning at home, it'll be easier, but if you're in the house, uh, just look at the screen here. And this book is entitled Love You Forever. And pretty good chance because of its popularity that a few of you have read this before. I told uh, someone here this week that I was, might do this on Mother's Day and she said that she used to read it to her children. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she, while she held him, she sang, I love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The baby grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old and he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator and he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed. If he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The little boy grew, he grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old and he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor and looked up over the side of his bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang... I love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The boy grew, he grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends and he wore strange clothes and he listened to strange music. Sometimes his mother felt like she was in a zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy, gets a little creepy now, and rocked him, just wait, and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. When she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. That teenager grew, he grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a grown-up man. He left home and got a house across town. But sometimes on dark nights, the mother got into her car and drove across town. I told you. <laughs> Y'all aren't ready. If all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his bedroom window, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of his bed. If that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, 
I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. By the way, there's a sequel to this book called Love You Forever, but I'll call you before I come over (laughs) because boundaries are healthy in any relationship. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. One day she called up her son and said, you better come see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. When he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I love you forever. I'll like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old and sick. The son went to his mother. He picked her up and rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang this song, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy, you'll be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. Then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The backstory to this is a writer named Robert Munch. He's Canadian. And early on in his life, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He would later be diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. He writes about his life when he was uh, only in the fifth grade that his depression was so great that he would often, it was just unrelenting his thoughts of suicide. To medicate the pain of his life as he grew up, he turned to alcohol and thankfully turned to AA and got a lot of help that he needed. He wanted to be a clergy. He he took school. He went to seminary for several years, but his life was so dark and uh, just terrible inside that he just couldn't move toward the ministry. Later, he would get married and he and his wife would um, get pregnant and they would go to the hospital and give birth to a stillborn child. And again, they got pregnant, she did, his wife, and they drove to the hospital to give birth to another stillborn child. And the writer writes, I want to write stories where love is stronger than death. I want to write a story about what's great about this life and how we can, we can overcome. And this morning, as we round toward home, I just want to quickly talk to you about disappointment and about brokenheartedness. Because there comes a time in every person's life when you'll be at the top of the stairs. Everybody. No one's exempt. And when you're at the top of the stairs, a lot of your life is behind you. and You never dreamt that you would have this much hurt, this much loss, this much disappointment. And so my question, I'm about to drop three points on you quickly, but so my question is, what do you do? What do you do? with your disappointment. What do you do? Whitney Houston, a song I heard last weekend, driving around my hometown. In the 80s when I was in college, she sang, where do broken hearts go? And she would later die in a bathtub in a hotel. And three years later, her daughter would die in a bathtub in a hotel. What happens when you get to the top of the stairs? Where do broken hearts go? I want to give you three thoughts about bringing a disappointed heart to God. We see the disappointment of God with his children. We see his grace and mercy. Let's learn from his character. Number one, here's the first thought. Talk to God about your disappointed heart. Talk to him. Talk to him about your disappointed heart. 
It's easy for us to think that church is a place where we come and we manage our outsides. We come here and we manage our outsides. But if you look in the Bible, you won't find any place in Scripture, any place where Jesus teaches the value of managing your outsides. There is a mom, a story of a mom, and uh, she was having a bad day. Moms, anybody relate? There were spills, there were messes, there were temper tantrums. She screamed at her kids, and she's like, I gotta, we got to change the venue. That always helps, right? Change the venue. So she takes them outside. It's a warm, sunny day, and uh, she's trying to put a smile on her face, and one of the kids says, Mom, why are you angry? She says, I'm not angry. And that same little boy looks up at her and says, well, your eyebrows are angry. And how many times have you been like, I'm okay, I- I'm-, I'm fine, I'm-, I'm happy, I'm happy. But listen to me, the older you get, and I'm not, this isn't a challenge for any of you to try, especially men, because we think categorically here, all right? But you can't hide secrets. And when you work really hard to hide certain things, there's a part of you that's showing. There's a part of you, and the closer we live, that's why so many of us refuse a community where we want to live in isolation. But the closer you get to people, and you, if you have a few in your life who love you, they're going to know because you and I can't manage everything. Again, it's not a challenge to be, to be skillful, to be a silver-tongued devil, and to hide things and get better at it. Look, you just can't. Jesus made a promise in Luke 8, 17. You can't keep secrets. Like, you, you can't. So church, man, let, let it never be a part of our church. Leadership especially, never let it be a part of Fondren Church where we think this is a place to come to manage your outside of your life, the outside image of who you are, just the opposite of that. Don't think church is a place for beautiful, smart, well-put-together people to bring beautiful, smart, well-together family members and come and sit and act like you're beautiful and smart and well-put-together. Like, that's, that's not a path. To, can I just, let me speak to selfishness. That's not even a path to happiness. Blessed are those meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the brokenhearted. It's when you share your weakness and don't try to manage the outside. Only then will you find happiness. Only then. Several years ago, I started reading the Bible differently. And I would say Deeper. And I started thinking about this idea of talking to God about your disappointed heart. And I, I read where Abraham argued with God. And then I read where Moses argued with God. And then I read where the psalmist asked questions like, where are you, God? Why do you hide your face from me? Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 that Jesus would say from the cross. Where are you? Why do you hide your face from me? Why have you forsaken me? And I see there this cosmic, ceaseless, ongoing conversation, a dialogue, a dance, a wrestling match between God and human and divine. And it goes on and on and on and nowhere. Let me be clear this morning because there's a lot of people uh, deconstructing their faith and we need to get out in front of this a little more. But look, nowhere in this book does it say, be brainwashed. Nowhere in this book does it say, just believe it and shut up. In fact, we see people who question and doubt and argue and wrestle. And Jesus himself would say to you today, examine carefully, question critically, argue, wrestle, doubt. It's the only way that you'll own it on your own. I am a testimony to this. 
It's freeing when you have faith that matters, when it brings a peace and you can see the fruit in your life. But look, you've got to go through doubt and to argue with God and to share this, to bring to God your disappointed heart. A, a writer, a pastor named Dane Ortland, uh, I won't get this fully right. I wish I'd prepare better but Dane Ortland talks uh, he says uh, he talks about teams about human relationships so let's think about this to the divine but he says if you know there's two types of teams and there's a team where when you're having the meeting you bring everything out on the table and it's constructive and even if the conversation's hard you talk about it to the team and it's right there and the other kinds of teams you have conversations down the hallway and it's it's, it's plotting and it's it's a destructive and it's sidebar conversations that sow discord. And he says, Dane Orton says, you can't have it both ways. Either you're going to be healthy or unhealthy. But if you're doing that down the hallway, what does that mean? Let me ask you on a team. And are you on a team and at the workplace? What does that mean if people are going down the hallway talking? If they're plotting things and they but they didn't bring it up the meeting, that means they don't trust the boss. That means they don't respect he or him or her. That means there's not respect there. They doubt their goodness and their love. And the same thing can be true with God. Don't go the, down the hallway and talk about him. That's not destructive. Talk to him and argue with him and wrestle with him and bring all of your doubts and your questions. And I will tell you, if you I, I'm born from plagiarism, Jeremiah. If you seek him with all of your heart, you will find him. But you will not seek him with all of your heart if you're not bringing your doubts and your questions and your struggles to him. Point two, don't base the well-being of your heart on the outcome of someone else's life. Parenthetically, not even someone you love. Parenthetically, parenthetically, not even your child. There's a saying, I might need somebody to help me with this. You ever heard this? It's, um, you can only be as happy as your unhappiest child. And can I just say that that's pretty stupid. And it sounds tender. Like you, you, you can't, you're, if you're a mother, you've given birth. And so if you have, I mean, if you could have 12 children, but if one of them's not happy, you can't be happy because you got a child that's not happy. And that, can I just say, that sounds so tender. Like that sounds like a boy, that's a good mama. But can I tell you, it's stupid. It's stupid. It's in the pantheon of stupid sayings. It's in the upper echelon of the pantheon of stupid sayings. And God doesn't run his universe like that. Can I tell you? He doesn't run his universe like that. God doesn't say if there's one prodigal daughter, one prodigal son, one person that's uh, choosing, uh, making bad choices and turning away from me, then I'm just going to come down there and be miserable with them. God doesn't run the universe like that. And God doesn't want us to live that way. Imagine you're having, let me build my case quickly. Imagine you're uh, having lunch tomorrow with someone. And you go meet them and you're there first and they come in and, and they sit down with you and you can tell something's on their face. They're going to tell you something. You go, how you doing? And they say, hey, give me, look, they look to the waitress and say, bring me a menu. And then they say to you, uh, I'm basing my personal well-being uh, on, the, on, the, on the unhealthy emotions of my worst relative. Well, how, would you, how would you counsel them? They're putting their whole personal well-being on the, on the emotional well-being of their worst, un, most unhealthy relative. What would you say there? You would say, forget the menu, let's go to counseling. Like you wouldn't want, you wouldn't recommend anybody to do that. If they were your friend and you were having lunch with them, you would say, no, there's a better way. And I'm not giving comprehensive theology now on empathy because empathy is a really good thing. 
I'm going to hear from some of you counselors. We've got a few counselors in the house. Empathy is a very good thing. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. But it's different than to sit with someone and weep with them and then to put all of your hopes of happiness on them and their well-being. And so the point, don't base the well-being of your heart on the outcome of someone else's life. It's a time for me to drop one of my favorites, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. If you want strength to give to other people, be happy in the Lord. The better mom you'll be, the better person that you will be, the better follower of Jesus, that's the ultimate goal to be his disciple. You'll have more to give people around you if you find your happiness in the Lord, not tied to somebody else. The third and final point of this bringing your disappointment to God. Don't let disappointment somewhere blind you to the good elsewhere. We're going to kind of close on this. You'll hear music in a moment. We're going to have you stand and sing before we go. But just think about this for a second. Um, go back to the point there. Don't let disappointment somewhere blind you to the good elsewhere. I had a wedding last night and a couple young and beautiful stood right here with us and a lot of people in the church house and I I started doing this in weddings at least half of them but uh, I usually save it for the office when I'm doing one session after Laura McAlpin on pre-marriage counseling some of you may not even nod your head and know this but I I tell them it's a, it's a skill it's like a really cool thing you need in your toolbox if you're going to be married for a long time and I tell the I tell the the, the woman I, to, to respect him God made him this way and sometimes he'll be easy to respect sometimes it'll be difficult sometimes it'll be an act of faith but he's at his worst when he's disrespected he's at his best when he's respected it's good if he's respected by a boss or a best friend but he needs respect from his bride and respect him and he'll flourish and I tell that guy and scripture gives a whole lot more advice to the husbands and loving the wives. But I tell them, hey, tell her every day that you love her. Every day, tell her that you love her. I love you. And last night's case, Hunter, tell Katie you love her. Tell her you love her because, and fill in the blank. Tell her you love her because she's beautiful. Tell her you love her because she puts up with you. Tell her you love her because of how she cares for the kids. Tell her you love her. Tell her you love her. Look for that. And I'm not just wanting to make them feel good. Why do you think I'm telling people that? You, I've only got like 20 minutes and I, I, I might speak for 10 minutes at a wedding. But why do I tell them that? Because each couple, this dynamic responsive space between husband and wife, things are going to come in between it. And one of the things that comes in between it is how we just naturally keep a record of wrongs. And can I tell you, and this is true of marriage, it's true of any relationship. The moment I start communicating to you that you're a disappointment to me, the relationship starts dying. Notice every word there. The moment I start communicating to you that you are a disappointment to me the relationship starts dying and so Paul now would say this so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13 love always looks for the best do you love always looks for the best here's what's helped me as I follow Jesus a prayer I pray often Lord help me to see them the way you see them help me to look beyond the disappointment help me to see the potential in that person no relationship is going to be void of disappointment and look some of you preachers say this you've heard me say it there's a pain in every pew every Sunday there's a pain in every pew and some of you whether acknowledged verbally or not are on the precipice 
of being wounded and having a relationship end. And disappointment is a factor. Where do broken hearts go? Take it to God. Take that to God and don't put your well-being in the hands of another person and their, the outcome of their life. Look for the best in others. See what the potential is in other folks. Would you stand with me? As the team comes, uh, just uh, in prayer, whether you bow your head, close your eyes, whatever. Prayer is such a beautiful thing. We had a moment last night where the parents came up and they surrounded the couple. And right here, the parents of the the dad of the groom prayed and he he did well he got through it the dad of the bride prayed and he couldn't say a word besides all I heard is Jesus and a bunch of tears and I'm like that's if when I get my daughter away I'm gonna say Jesus too and a bunch of tears and uh, pathetic it's pitiful but beautiful but prayer is just simply talking with God and we overcome, we're going to begin a new series next week called Repeat After Me, where we're going to learn in deeper ways how to pray as Jesus prayed. But today, whether for you uh, this holiday is one of simple, unfettered joy and gratitude, or whether it's hard and complicated, I pray that you would think today about where you go when you're at the top of the stairs where you bring a broken heart let me pray a prayer over us today would you pray with me father thank you for a day where there are lots of hugs and kisses and there are tears and there's pause and there are grave sites and there are other memorials that represent loss and pain for people and mamas in this room And there are lies from society and culture I pray won't infiltrate into our church that um, this woman is a second-class citizen because she's not a mom. And God, for all the hard and all the hurt and all the complicated, would you minister today? And would you move Fondren more and more away from, I can go to church today and manage my outside. And let us put so much less emphasis on coming across as beautiful, smart, put-together people with beautiful, smart, put-together families. That we would express our doubt and bring our questions. I think of a Savior who asked, uh, who got asked so many questions and answered questions with questions. How do you read this? How do you interpret this? What do you say? Lord, give us a faith in the midst of so much heartbreak and disappointment that can stand the test of time. That won't just be, as we've said before, a starting faith, but it can be a staying faith. Minister to hearts today. This we pray in Jesus. Amen.